Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the Doctor Who episode A Christmas Carol, the Disney film Coco, and the fanfic Shang Qinghua's No Good, Very Bad, Several Iterations of a Day. Oh, and welcome to episode 77. Snacks bless us, everyone. You said you were going to do that, but I was still not ready, Alex. I was I not said I ready. was going to do it in my Tiny Tim voice. I don't know why you weren't I'm ready. I'm not prepared. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm Alex, and I am the Good King Wenceslas. I'm Freya, and I'm the Hallelujah Chorus. I'm Macy, and I am in the bleak midwinter. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're getting into the holiday spirit by talking about some uh, holidays and festivals and joyous occasions to be with your loved ones. But before we get into all that, my loved ones, oh fellow serpents, what are we reading? <laughs> it has only been a week since we last recorded, so I have had to reach slightly backwards in time to make up a trio of things because I only read two, which is very... <gasps> I know. But I did recently read The Art of Theft by Sherry Thomas, which is, I think, the fourth book in the Lady Sherlock series, hmm. which I think I've discussed briefly before. It's a series of mysteries slash slow burn romances going on at the same time set in Victorian London, which is a take on the Sherlock Holmes series where the main character, Charlotte Holmes, uh, is having to make her way in the world as a young lady who doesn't want to get married. Mm. and solves a lot of mysteries and has, you know, a slow burn romance with her old childhood friend. Anyway, this one, The Art of Theft, is a heist book, which was absolutely great. So it's starring her and quite a few of the secondary characters, like her family members and friends. And it also stars Mrs. Watson's A Lesbian Backstory, which was great. <laughs> anyway, this series is really, really good. I definitely recommend it. And this was a great installment. I also read the latest Alyssa Cole romance, so she has now started a series called The Runaway Royals. Huh. She's been doing this series of modern day royals, most of whom are set um, in imaginary countries on Ruritania. the African continent. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically the African version of Ruritania, uh, but there's a couple That's of European cool. ones as well. <laughs> and she's got this like very in-depth interconnections between all the, the young royals of all of these families. Great fun. Uh, and this one is about the new king of a particular country who is extremely anxious and has been told mm. like he has to live up to his father's strength and he has to be the same kind of king as his father and he's terrified doesn't know how to do this and the woman who applied through a royal matchmaking site to be queen because <laughs> she wants to be a queen she doesn't care about who she's marrying or which country but she wants to be a queen so that she can do politics and improve the world and get things done. And she is very annoyed that it appears that the country she's ended up in wants her to just sit quietly in a corner and maybe do some busy work in the archives and not wield any actual power. Mm. And she goes about attempting to teach her very anxious and not very confident husband how to be a king while trying to get herself made seriously and accidentally making friends with revolutionaries in a rebellious bookshop. <laughs> We love this, actually. We love this. This is a um, We love this. Alex, you need to read this. This sounds like entirely my jam. No, Alex, this would be so up your alley. This, it was put me a chapter and a half, I think, to sort of get into the characters a little bit because I was so stressed out by the king's point of view. Yeah. But 
fantastic. Like Alyssa <laughs> Cole does amazing romances. Um, this one does star a lot of people from her previous Royals series, but they're all introduced in such a way that you know exactly who they are. So A plus recommend. And I also read a fanfic because mm. <gasps> I was at a writing retreat as we know from the chaos of recording last time. And this was recommended to me uh, in the, I guess the haze that we found ourselves in of it's 2020 and Destiel is canon now, but only in Spanish. (laughs) So (laughs) apologies to any future listeners that will make no sense whatsoever, but it, yeah, Tumblr at the moment has been a trip. Anyway, this is a fanfic called four letter word for intercourse by bending signpost. It is a, Dean Castiel fanfic. It's a complete AU. And it is hardcore identity porn straight up and down. So it's about a Dean Winchester who in his early 30s ends up going to university for the first time to do business management so he can take over the garage. And he ends up number one, calling a sex line to explore whether he might be bisexual and ends up in uh, having an ongoing a client relationship with somebody who is helping him explore his sexuality and kink. And he also ends up kind of befriending someone that he sits opposite every Friday at the library at the university where they sort of communicate by giving each other coffee or writing notes, but it is complete silence in the library. So they never hear each other of speak. Course. It is really good. Like it's basically, you know, half of it is cute silent flirtation in a library and the other half is phone sex. And I love that setup. I've seen that setup in other fics before, and it's very good because otherwise, like, if they spoke, then they would recognize each other's voices. Yeah, exactly. And so they have to be in the library, which is, like, totally silent. It's yeah, wonderful. So it's, it's a great setup. tension of when will one yeah. of them hear the other one speak, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty long read, but very tropey and very enjoyable. Well, it can't be as long as your favorite uh, supernatural fic. No, and my favorite supernatural fic has almost no sex in it, so... This is quite a nice balm on the part of my part of my soul that really wishes the other one had more. I, meanwhile, it has been a week and I have not had to be writing. So I've actually read a book. Yay! Yay, Macy. I have read a book called The Scapegraces by Hannah Abigail Clark. And it is so good that I accidentally, I sat down and then suddenly it was three hours later and I'd read like half the book. Um, and it's kind of this like, YA feral witchcraft full of queer girls and like getting kidnapped by quiverful people and like trying to curse the dude who's stalking your friend um and I had to you know that thing when you're really enjoying a book and so you make yourself slow down because you realize otherwise it'll be done too soon Mm -hmm. so yes I have not finished it yet because I was like oh no if I read it at this pace it will be done like already so I am very much enjoying that and highly recommend it. That's also one from the Erewhon Books indie mm-hmm. setup. So I'm super excited to see what else they buy, if this is an indication of uh, Liz's tastes. Yes. And as well as the book, I have been playing so much Hades. So very much <laughs> you Hades. You and most of the internet. <laughs> Listen. I have no excuses. It's good. Um, It's by the same indie game shop that did Bastion, if you remember that. It's very good. It's good fun. It's about a small Greek god boy who is trying to escape the underworld because his dad is mean. Uh, And he makes friends. 
and punches people and dies a lot. And as well as that, I have been watching the TV show Hellstrom on Hulu, which is kind of like The Exorcist, except it's about these two kids um, who are grown up now, whose father was a serial killer and whose mother is possessed by a demon. And the girl of the family is like a traumatized, badass murder murder Mm -hmm. lesbian. And she just walks around being a stone-cold goth and killing people rather than talking about her feelings. Okay. That's her hobby is murder. And I'm into it. Uh, So that's great. But yeah, lots of like gruesome, gruesome serial killer dad is maybe a demon and eats people with his rib cage, which he can unhinge. That sounds like your sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, uh, it has been one week since we recorded our last episode, dear listeners. Somehow. Somehow. And um, NaNoWriMo is over, but I am still writing because (laughs) I am still publishing a fic every other day on AO3. Um... It's going really well. I'm really enjoying this series that I'm writing. Uh, so I have not read much of anything um, except fanfic. Um, I did watch another couple episodes of the live-action Chinese drama adaptation of uh, Hikaru no Go, mm. uh, which is extremely good. It's extremely good. And Sai, who was my favorite in the anime, is still my favorite now. He's the perfect boy. Look <laughs> at this perfect boy. He has this like perfect eyeliner, eye makeup thing going on. And he's a <laughs> sassy fucking bitch. And the love of my life. Uh, noted. And also a ghost. And a ghost. Also a ghost. He's so pretty. He's so, so pretty, you guys. Uh-huh. I can't even. Anyway, I have I have a question. I have a uh-huh. burning question uh-huh. that has been plaguing me since like last night. And it uh-huh. has to do <laughs> with one of the tent poles. Well, I mean, Frey is not here to act as a doctor right now, but... Uh... Not that kind of burning. <laughs> Macy, Macy, I need Alexander. you to take... I need you to take some responsibility oh for your country. No. I need you to explain. No. No. I need you to explain to me why I have been keel-hauled for sincerity crimes for three years now. That's true. And that yet, true. and yet, you make me watch the Doctor Who Christmas special, <laughs> which is over-brimming with sincerity crimes. What have you to say for yourself? I have I I take no responsibility for the men folk. Well, I don't think I think it's very in keeping with our colonial forebears that none of us will take any responsibility That's for anything that happens. Uh, <laughs> I will note, Alex, that I yeeted my country eight years ago. Um, or rather, myself. Can oneself yeet? I don't think so. Anyway, um, the key point yeet as I'm... reflexive verb. Yeah. How does one eh, auto yeeting? Mm. Anyway. Um, so many jokes, so little time. Uh, the thing about Doctor Who that I think America doesn't quite get is that it's a kid's show. We do not get that whatsoever. This is a grown-up show show in America. No, it's for children. It's for children. And Uh, that is why there is sincerity here. Mm. I mean, also Christmas, but like... A lot of the ways that the Doctor is sincere 
is part of the appeal because he is breaking a taboo or she is breaking a taboo depending on the iteration against that right and part of that i think is that we sort of grudgingly recognize that children do need sincerity because it is confusing to understand praise when it is given in the standard insulting way that I might praise one of you two, right? Well, I have a theory uh-huh. and we should jump back in a second and actually talk about name tenpole. which, which tenpole we're talking about here. But <laughs> especially, it's been a long time since I'd seen a Doctor Who episode, but especially watching this one, the Doctor come is a quite flippant, a bit sarcastic, not necessarily sincere in and of themselves, but they are a vehicle and a catalyst for sincerity in the people around them. Mm. Mm. That's fair. The Doctor doesn't let you get away with hiding things, because he will break taboos and confront you about stuff that you might have wanted to Britishly not talk about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mind you, let us rewind approximately two minutes and 44 seconds and tell our poor, long-suffering darling listeners... That today's first tentpole, and yes, I am speaking like Margaret Thatcher, and no, I don't know why, um, is the Doctor Who Christmas special, What Has Sharks in It? Yes, uh, the yeah, one What me, Has I Sharks in It. <laughs> this is not entirely Freya's fault, because I'm pretty sure that's how I pitched it to the other serpents. The one You said yeah, flying one. fish. You said the one what has fish in it. Not fish, spelled F-I-S-H. The one which has fish in it. F-E-E-S-H. Fish are very important. This is why we should all back the Mermaid Monthly Kickstarter that is currently running. But um, this... I don't know that it will still be running when this episode comes out. Well, then we should go read about mermaids because there will be mermaids for us to read about, which is almost (laughs) better. However, this is the episode 14 of season 5 Christmas special called A Christmas Carol which is an extremely thinly veiled fanfic of the Dickens Christmas Carol, except for how it's totally not, because the Doctor is doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Doctor is doing a canonical, like, play within a play um, to con a miserly old man into running a machine that will save his companions' lives where they are trapped in an ice storm above the planet. Um And I find this episode interesting almost at a meta level more than for what it has in it in terms of plot Mm. because there's a lot going on here that assumes certain cultural standards. Mm -hmm. I think it's very early on that it says every planet has a festival of the winter lights. There's... In our culture... There's a lot of assumptions around Christmas, right? That Christmas is a neutral, secular thing that everyone is familiar with, that everybody celebrates Christmas, understands Christmas, knows what it's for and how it works. And Moffat does not quite succeed in lampshading this. I don't think he was trying to. I don't think he has the self-awareness to do so. So it's somewhat unquestioned. And, you know yelling about the colonialism of assuming that other planets will celebrate your particular religious festival, insert here. (sighs) 
somebody cut me off and say something more interesting than just Macy is mad about the English op- imposing themselves damn on damn it, others. Moffat. God damn it, Moffat. I mean, there's a lot of problems that I have with Moffat-era yeah. Doctor Who. Um, I There were several points in this episode where I winced extremely hard. Um, for example, the slur. Yes, let's, be ma- let's use that word for the Roma, sure. But it also has some nice things that it demonstrated around um, Christmas as a family thing and families as not a neutral good. Um, Mm. And kind of using a festival as a vehicle for connecting to others and having a degree of vulnerability that you might not at other times of the year. Right, Mm. right. And it had some... It had some important things to say, I think, about how important it is to remember that other people are people and that Mm. we can care about them. Mm -hmm. And it does a very specific thing, which I will be yelling about at length later (laughs) on when we get on to talking about Christmas romances and Christmas rom-coms. But it uses a gathering of a family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with uh, Abigail's family that she goes and visits to show and highlight the deficits in the family of the person that she's bringing into the fold. Yes. And that's a very, very common theme of somebody being taken into somebody else's warm and embracing family mm-hmm. at Christmas mm-hmm. to say, this is what a family should be. You know, it should be about acceptance and love and music and everyone sits around the table and puts on their funny hats and Pulls the eats all the food as the crackers, sings the music. Like This is the pure distilled essence of family, which is what we'll probably talk about later. Mm-hmm. But it's used to say, this is what it should be to say, this is what you are lacking when it comes to the main character who obviously has a very sort of distant and cruel father who's trying to shape him in one direction. Mm. I will say, I think this was a very, it did have problems, but I admire this episode's writing and structure Mm -hmm. quite well. It's a very, very good use of the central conceit of time travel. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of Christmas past, present and future is a very, very timey-wimey you know, kind of trope. So putting Doctor Who into that worked really well. And I know it just hit all the beats really well, but it still managed to surprise me because I'd forgotten the plot from the one time I watched this many, many years ago about that you're aiming to change somebody's mind and heart. But even then doing that creates new problems and new complications and the solution to the problem is not actually what you think it's going to be. Right. It's a very well-constructed, self-contained story. Right, and it's also visually very beautiful. Um, I Mm -hmm. really do love those fish. So part of it is there's, this is a world with a perpetual ice fog storm through which fish swim. And Mm. yeah, yeah, I just really loved them. It was really lovely. And as the title suggests, it places great emphasis on the importance of Christmas carols (laughs) and music. And music as resonance to tame the sharks. Yes! And there was, they do sing in a bleak midwinter, although it's a different tune to the setting of the poem that's more common um, mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, and mm. I think it also just, uh, watching it made me think a lot of things about the current, the modern British secular experience of Christmas, right? Um, because this is, so the Doctor Who Christmas special shows on BBC, right? On, I believe it's Christmas Day? It might be Christmas Eve, but it's very much a thing where you sort of get the sense that a large chunk of the country is sitting down in front of their TVs to watch it at the same time as you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Right? Along with the Queen's speech right beforehand. 
which fewer fewer people watch. More people yeah. turn it on, mute it, and then have a cup of tea while they wait to see if Doctor Who is on yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an institution, right? And I think that that's part of it for me is the melding of the experience of festival inside your house, inside your intimate relationships, transcending that and joining you with your community at large. Right? Mm. Which I think is a bigger yeah, theme yeah. with festival is this Feeling sense of, of synchronization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is quite interesting to watch this and to know how deeply cultural this whole idea of being halfway through the dark and we are in the midwinter, but it's okay because there's going to be a roaring fire and chestnuts and warm <laughs> scarves and music and we're going to have a lively sing-song. Freya's fun the fact average Christmas. yelling Australian corner begins. <laughs> the average Southern Christmas hemisphere. experience in Australia <laughs> does not involve snowflakes, roaring fires, anything of that nature. We have very long days at this time of year. And... At the same time, because it is a cultural import, mm. you know, we are still an English colony right. uh, for all the problems that that has. We still celebrate Christmas on a very secular community-based level. There will still be Christmas decorations everywhere, music playing, and we will still <laughs> sing about In the Bleak Midwinter and all snowmen and snowflakes and all of the decorations will be snowmen. <laughs> That's so funny to me. And it will be 35 fucking degrees. <laughs> And people will be wearing these tiny little dangly snowman oh, earrings. And the thing is, for us, it's just part of the fact that it's non-religious. Mm. Yeah. I think to me, like, it, it's really, it's it's part of this fantasy that we're all buying into. And there are these symbols of celebration right. that have absolutely nothing to do with anything of, of our day-to-day experience. Yeah. But, you know, you still put by a Christmas tree that looks like it's got fake snow on it, even though it's <laughs> very hot outside. I'm remembering yeah. Freya, the Fryony Fisher fake Christmas episode where they do Christmas in, was it August, July? Christmas in July. Yeah. yeah. So Australians love doing Christmas in July because it means that you get to have the proper, in quotes, Christmas experience at the proper time of year. Right. And my family, being quite British, does the full roast turkey, roast dinner, uh, Christmas meal, which... And we do that on Christmas Day because we have an outdoor barbecue where you can put the turkey oh, and have it not turkey. completely swelter out the house. Uh, and we do we do that sort of warm warm meal and often we'll do like an, an ice cream-based dessert to compensate. But a lot of Australians would never do that. Like the classic Australian Christmas lunch might be more based on like cold ham. Mm. Prawns are a big thing, like huge, huge seafood sales in Christmas week. Mm. in Australia because there's this recognition that even though we have all the trappings and the symbols, we are not halfway through the dark. We are in blazing light. Probably there's a bushfire somewhere in the country. <laughs> oh, God. But this is also the end of the year. Right. Yeah. And the time between Christmas and New Year's is the summer ho- – it's the beginning of the summer holidays mm-hmm. for uh, children at school, for universities. And so we have a very calendar-based – conception of when years begin and end Mm. because school ends for the year in December and then you have this glorious stretch of summer holidays over December and January and everything starts again 
in February. Uh, before we continue too far, I do just want to make one more quick important note about uh, the Doctor Who, Who Christmas special. If anyone watches it, just be forewarned, there are some like pretty explicit examples of physical child abuse. Yes. You don't actually see the child getting hit, but you see the child being menaced and threatened. So if that is a sensitive topic for you, maybe skip this one. Now we can continue. All right, so we should move on to the second tentpole. Uh, which also has a young boy as a protagonist through which we see the eyes of a festival. And this is the Disney film Coco, which is about a young Mexican boy called Miguel, who really, really loves music and wants to be a performer, but his family wants him to make shoes. Very classic <laughs> story set up. <laughs> they have their reasons. And on Dia de los Muertos, he, for reasons to do with stealing someone's guitar, ends up having to go to the land of the dead in order to get find a way for him to stop being half dead and half alive, and along the way uncovers a lot of secrets and unravels a family mystery and discovers some things about his ancestors, and also <laughs> gets involved in performance art with dead Frida Kahlo, which is just... <laughs> An amazing Which scene. That just that, that the skeletons coming out of the papaya is still the papaya, terrifying. Yeah. And they go yes. and they drink from the tears of the cactus, who is also me, and everything is on fire. <laughs> oh. <sighs> this this is I love this film. Like it's bright. It's got wonderful music. It's really creative. The storyline is just perfectly pitched, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it is around a festival. It's around Dia de los Muertos. And I think it's another one that brings us back to festival as family, right? Absolutely. That quite quite explicitly. Oh, yeah. And the way that the belief system works is that the families display the photographs of their loved ones so that the loved ones can cross over the Bridge of Petals on that day and be with their family, accept the offerings. But it only works if they are displaying your photograph and they still have this memory of you. Um, and so you have one of the characters who has kind of been forgotten deliberately by his family because of what they believe he did um and so this is sort of a story about forgiveness as well but through the vehicle of the festival and remembering what you did and having the right context and information so, and the first time i saw this that theme of family i remember thinking that they were going to branch out a little bit into the idea of found mm. family and what if you find out that you're biological ancestors were not actually all that great and not people that you want mm. to be associated with and I thought oh maybe it'll be about like creating bonds and remembering people even if you're not actually descended from them or related right. to mm. them but I think the only that probably was a couple of layers too many to expect from this particular Disney children's film the only example they had of someone being remembered by a non-family member was the guy who was on his dentist's oh. offer <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they're like, yeah, these huge skeletal oh. teeth. And they're like, oh, your dentist has put up your photo. Off you go. <laughs> that was cute. One of my favorite uh, aspects of how they showed family was that all of the the dead relatives and ancestors, uh, when Miguel comes to the land of the dead, like they clap eyes on him and they recognize him immediately. And they're familiar with him mm. in the way in which you're familiar with family. Like there's not the, oh, who are you? Oh, you're our family. Oh, let's let's uh, take you in and introduce you around. It's immediately like, Miguel, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, because I guess that, and in the final scene, you see why, because they've been coming yeah. across the yeah. every like, year they and know they see him. him grow up. Yeah, so cute. yeah. Um, just really, really sweet. Yeah. And gorgeous film. Another gorgeous, gorgeous film. Those colors, though. Oh, it's so pretty. Yeah. And again, very, very much about music and the importance of music in, you know, creating joy and giving depth to 
the world and being something that you're allowed to pursue. Mm. And I think Alex wanted to have some feelings about Coco as bard tentpole. I think I put I didn't actually put that down. That was Macy. Excellent, Macy. Yeah. I agree completely. Tell me more about this. Well, I think that the part of the story also is around the fact that um, Miguel could have gone back home almost immediately, but Mm -hmm. his family asks that he sacrifice his music to do so, and he wouldn't. And so he goes off on this epic quest because music is burningly important to him. And in the end, when he does go back to be with his living family, music is the thing which brings back the memory of his great-grandfather to his grandmother, Coco. Right? Great. Am I getting the greats correct? No, I think Coco's the great-grandmother. So So the great-great-grandfather. It's her dad. Yes. Um, And so the film validates this belief that... You know, you need the roses as well as the bread. Yes. Mm, and that yes. music can bring out memories where other ones were. And it was very interesting because the first tent pole, for all that it's, you know, a, a children, these are both children aimed at children, but they are about music, memory, very mm. explicitly, because in the Doctor Who one, he is attempting to change this person's memory by messing with his past and mm-hmm. death and mm-hmm. the inevitability of death, uh, which is... You know, three some fairly heavy themes, but this is this is how you present them to children. My God, <laughs> and yes, and then someone put a uh, dot point here about a fanfic. Who was that? That was me. Tell us this all is about one this of fanfic. My favorite fanfics. So, if you have seen Coco and enjoyed it, and if you haven't, we obviously really recommend yes. it. Yes, there is an incredible fanfic called Ernesto de la Cruz versus the <laughs> Court of Public Opinion by Skater of the Surface. And one of the AO3 tags is thrilling archival <laughs> research. This is an incredibly good story. And it is one that is, again, sort of a found footage mm. thing. So it's told with, with um, articles, letters, a lot of tweets. And it's about what happens online and what happens to the memory of Ernesto de la Cruz, who is this big, you know, the most famous singer in all of Mexican history, uh, when he is proven to be actually someone who stole music from someone else and then killed him. But at the end of the movie, we know that because we followed Miguel to the, the land of the dead. Nobody else knows this yeah. at the very end of the film. You see in the epilogue that now his uh, name has become more uh, tarnished and people know who he really was. This story is about how that happened mm. and how you go about proving uh, you know, something that is against the main narrative right. in society of this very well-loved celebrity when all you have is the fact that you went back <laughs> and on Dia de los Muertos and met some dead people. Which is very few, very few Twitter followers will believe that, unfortunately. Yes, exactly. This is very funny. It's a, plays around incredibly well with that narrative structure of, um, you know, that very who lives, who dies, who tells your story, where do you, where does your legacy come from and what evidence gets put forth in order to change it. We love so, that. Very much the kind of thing that serpents and serpent listeners are into. Yes. So I wanted to shout that out here because it's really good. And I think that the next tentpole has nothing to do with death other than than Laputi. Well, no. I mean, he does get stabbed a couple times. Anyway, um, the next tentpole is our fanfic tentpole. And this is Shang Qinghua's No Good, Very Bad, Several Iterations of a Day. Open parentheses. Never eat an orange on the wrong holiday. Close parentheses. By Asymptotical. 
Uh, and this is a oh. fanfic of Scum Villain's self-saving system, and it is about Shang Tinghua, and uh, who is the author of the original novel, which uh, the transmigrated protagonist gets yeeted into. Yep. Uh, and then Shang Tinghua is also uh, yeeted into it. Uh, he Have is this nerdy little hamster man uh, with a crush on the giant hot ice demon prince. And uh, on the, the conceit of this fic is that there is one day he did his world building in a really fucked up way, which as an author, respect. I identify with respect, <laughs> respect, honestly, to Shang Tinghua. Um so he he like did some world building and like talked about it on the forum for his novel about how uh, there's like dozens and dozens of these fruit festivals, but they all happen on one day all at the same time. Uh, and for each fruit, like each fruit is celebrated in a different location. And uh, for each separate festival, you do a different thing. So, for example, for the cherry festival, obviously you refrain from sex for that day. <laughs> And one of the things is that you can't eat an orange because every 1,000th orange slice <laughs> will cause you to be stuck in a time loop. Only and on this day. On, on this day and, and relive the day over and over and over again. Until you've done all the festivals. Until you've done all of, all of the festivals. Uh, yeah. And so Shang Tinghua gets uh, <laughs> stuck in the time loop and has to go, go do all the festivals. And it is charming and it's funny and he is an oblivious moron and I love him. Uh, that's, that's that's everything I have to say about the that's fic. A, that's well, the fic. A, a big part of at least the fan fiction conception of Scum Villain's self-saving system is that Shang Qinghua is a hack. He's a hack. Yes. He's a hack. He's a hack. He's, God, I love him though. He's valid. <laughs> But I thought, I thought, as someone who's not familiar with this canon, We're sorry. and who was fairly confused <laughs> at certain points throughout the fic, like I, I basically got what was going on. Occasionally, someone would say something, I'm like, I, I don't understand. That's yeah. fine. Move on. It's cool. I think what this did do very well, in a very fun, tongue-in-cheek, but quite pointed way, was point out what festivals are for in fiction, mm -hmm. which is something that we will get to when we're doing a more general discussion. But it basically says if you are writing a story, a festival is a plot device to make someone do a thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sure. And yes. So, I mean, and Shang Tsinghuan knows that because at the beginning yes, of the fic, he, he was like, this was basically just an excuse to like have the protagonist of my novel, like do a bunch of stuff and like have sex with some ladies. Exactly. And then the next level of the meta is that the fanfic writer invented these festivals yeah. for this writer to invent yes. in order to make this character go <laughs> yes. and do all of those things. We stand, yes. So we stand. Like, it's got some beautiful levels of meta to it. Oh God, it's good. But it is, an especially if come on. I was gonna say, especially if you're coming from the fanfic point of view or the hack writer <laughs> point of view or the very understandable trope loving point of view of how can I put a lot of courtship rituals mm. and or sex rituals in while making jokes about the peach emoji? Amazing, yes, amazing. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's something that I was going to comment on here is this is an interesting set of festivals that, unlike many of our festivals in quote unquote the real world. Um, because let's get metaphysical up here. Um, they're not about family, right? A lot of these are, these mm. are almost all romantic or courtship ones. Because that's how Shang Tsinghua wrote them, right? 
Mm. Yeah, they're more, they're a little bit more like Carnival. Yes. Um, in that it's like an excuse to have a party to break some social norms and um, like, like do something weird and fun. Mm-hmm. Which is valid. Yes. That's a completely yeah. valid <laughs> reason to have a holiday. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. well. I think we can probably move on to that. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about that particular fic? I think the one thing for me that I found interesting was... Um, just from a writer's point of view, the difference between a festival and a ritual, right? Mm, yes. So mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I have lots of little rituals that are attached to festivals that may or may not have ever come from that festival. You know, I always light a candle on the equinox. Um, mm. And, you know, on Christmas, I will make sure to call my family. Um, but I think when we're writing, it can be easy to think that those are the same thing that like the actions that you do so for example uh there is one of these festivals in which chang Jinghua has to make a flower crown and put it on his courting ice prince's head um and there's a difference between the actions that you perform uh and the meaning of the festival and it doesn't really get into the meaning of the festival so much right i think it's a tendency of authors to try to summarize how people respond to things like this and have everybody respond the same way and do the same things when you're inventing Mm. a festival yes yes Mm. and no one ever in a community is going to have always (laughs) the same reaction to a festival right like there's some people who are just genuinely bored of christmas who don't do anything for christmas and there's people who absolutely love it and go all out for example the bbc Um, (laughs) well yeah and it's like what is a hamantaschen like do you have to have the apple and the honey on the right high holidays like there's just inter-community discussion about how do you festival Mm. is just a hilarious landmine right both how do you festival and also the intensity of festivaling Mm. and you can use it as a character note Mm -hmm. To say, what is it about this particular ritual that appeals to this person? Right. So I am not religious. I like Christmas as a time of year because I enjoy being able to pick and choose between particular rituals. Like I always put up my Christmas tree and decorate it on the 1st of December while blasting Christmas music. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I really like Advent calendars because there is something very satisfying about opening a little door every day and getting a surprise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of rituals around this time of year that I find personally satisfying because I like little rituals. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's true. You can say that here is the idea of the festival. Here is its origin. Here are the, all of the rituals that have sprung up around it. And if you're look, talking about an individual character, which ones do they adhere to and why can be a good way of doing character building and fleshing out their motivations and their personality. If you look at it in an interesting way, uh, Shang Qinghua going through the loop to get all of the festivals is kind of like an advent calendar, isn't it? Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh... Uh, shall we move on and talk about some taxonomies taxonomy Um, oh you always demand a taxonomy macy we love this about you what 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 (laughs) what is a festival okay so that's an interesting and complicated question because of course we all know what a festival is but what is a festival what is it for who is it for and why do we have them it's kind of a way to like break up the year into chunks so you always have something to look forward to. Uh, It's kind of a way to mark time. Uh, It is a way of 
recognizing like sort of the cycle of the seasons in some way. So those are like things mm-hmm. it can do. So I would I would say then that you need to have it. It needs to be agreed upon within a community. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be something that is communal to a particular community, no matter how big or small, or whether it's a subgroup within right. the society in which you like live. Pride, for example, is a festival, even though it's not a cultural per se. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it has to, I think the way that we are thinking about them, it has to coincide with a particular point on a calendar. I think so. Like all the ones that we were talking about here are things that doesn't matter which calendar you're talking about, it coincides with a particular date that people right. will celebrate it all at the same time. Yeah. And it's usually recurring. I think that probably any definition or taxonomy that we can come up with here will have um exceptions i think that festivals are something that are hugely culturally specific and so there's just a lot of ways to do them and there's ways that we as you know three white folks who are all steeped in christian at least culture if not religion are going to Mm -hmm. miss um so let's talk a little bit about then alex you mentioned the questions about like who is this festival for and who do you perform it with so what are some of those and how do we use them So I think one really obvious example that we haven't talked about yet is Mm -hmm. Halloween, which is quite explicitly, at least in America, is quite explicitly a holiday for children. Um, You know, adults kind of get into it by like having like Halloween parties, kind of like costume parties, etc. But Halloween as a concept is a children's holiday. And I think it's one of the only ones that we have in America in the modern world. Um, I guess so, Easter to some extent, yeah, I was say, but Easter, Easter, a little bit. Easter gets a little bit more religious. Um, I maybe in the US, I mean, but the egg hunt stuff. The egg um, hunt stuff, yeah, I think yeah. It's interesting, maybe in the UK, there's a little bit more, maybe we're just closer to Catholicism of the mm. All Hallows Eve, the Samhain, well, in as much as Samhain is Catholic, which is not at all. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, okay, so who else is it for? So, like, we can, with the example of Halloween, then, like, we have it being for a specific demographic, like an age range, children. So, a, a festival can be for a uh, demographic like that. Uh, it can be for a gender, for example, Mother's Day um, is also for both, like, an age set and a demographic. It can be for a religious group, people who uh, celebrate a specific thing. I think that for, for me also, there's a question not so much necessarily of who it is for, but who do you celebrate it with? Like Freya was saying, mm. a festival kind of has to be culturally defined. Um, yeah. And cultures, you can be a member of multiple cultures, right? Um, and so there are, in my mind, there's religious festivals, there's um, nationalistic festivals um Mm -hmm. and then there's kind of romantic festivals and there are i'm sure there's many others but those are kind of the big ones in my mind so i'm thinking of july the fourth of july or bonfire night when i'm thinking about Mm -hmm. um nation state sort of Mm. rah-rah propaganda yeah or bastille day Mm. and then i think rather than saying you know just romantic Mm. then you can say ones that are designed to celebrate or enhance certain types of bonds okay I like so your definition what, better mm-hmm. than mine. Let's do that. So Mother's Day, yes. Father's Day, um, relationships. Valentine's Day. Yeah, they're about they're about particular types of relationships, and I would say that their purpose in society then is to reinforce the bonds that form the structure of that particular society. Mm. You know, Valentine's mm. Day is about celebrating romantic, usually partnerships, 
and Mother's Day and Father's Day are about celebrating the bond between parent and child. Mm. And obviously, as we begin to acknowledge that there can be people who are neither mothers or fathers, or you know, people can be parents, and there can be two fathers or two mothers, or more than two, or people who do not fit neatly into one of those, you know, gender roles. I feel like the ce- it's more about expanding the celebrations, but people still acknowledge that parenthood is an important thing to be celebrated, and a romantic bond is still something to be celebrated. And you can talk all you like about the commercialization and selling chocolates. But that's what they're for, I think, these rituals. That makes sense. Mm. And I think that we talk a lot about rituals as rituals and festivals as celebration. And I think that most mm. of them are. They can have different moods as well, right? Like um, mm. there is in All Hallows, in like the British conception of remembering your dead is quite solemn. Even though, as we saw with Coco, that's not the case in all cultures. Yeah, and if you think about the religious meaning of Easter, Mm. Good Friday is meant to be solemn and then uh, Easter Sunday is meant to be joyous. It's meant to be about death and resurrection. Yes. And, you know, so you're supposed to be remembering this idea of sacrifice and then celebrating the resurrection of Christ on the third day. But you're right that there are also... So, for example, uh, like... Remembrance Day or days that are for veterans yeah. and things. There are some that are about not necessarily feeling joyful and, you know, celebration, but are about acknowledgement of something. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting to see how other cultures have, like, adapted uh, some of these uh, holidays for themselves. I Specifically, I'm thinking of the way in which Japan specifically celebrates Valentine's Day and then breaks it up into, so there's Valentine's Day and then a month later, roughly, there's White mm. Day. Uh, and so on Valentine's Day, like all of the girls give chocolate to the boys and on White Day, all of the boys give chocolate to the girls. And, and I mean, so many ahead, of the Christian uh, holidays are the result of the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire fucking off with um, indigenous holidays uh, of the nations that they conquered. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know what this is also making me think of? It's making me wonder whether um, the remembrance of the deep by Rivers Solomon is a sort of festival. Mm. Ooh. I would say yes. Ooh, very good. I would say yes as well. Because it's an annual event with great importance. Yeah, and it's keystones their society, mm. and it's about the remembrance, and it's about family, and it's about death, and all of those things. Yeah, very Mm. good, Macy. I like Mm. that. And I do. I don't know who this was, and I don't know if it was me in like a figure fugue or somebody else, but somebody has delivered the taxonomy: joyous, solemn, or horny, (laughs) as a way of breaking down festivals. That was Alex. Okay, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Then it was no, it's Macy. Yeah, I'm sorry. The yep. I will no, note I that, it. The, that nice. it says joyous, comma or solemn, love. open brackets, comma or horny, close brackets, question mark. Get rid of those brackets. <laughs> Live dangerously. Okay. Put the horniness out in the open. Uh, uh, but someone else has also written about <laughs> the, well, a particular type of festival that I mean, Alex, you mentioned Carnivale. Uh, mm-hmm. This idea of a festival that is a uh, built-in opportunity for social norms to be ah. turned upside down so think of the idea of the feast of fools um and yep. april fool's day and the idea that you can do what you want but only on this day mm. and normal mm-hmm. rules are suspended and so that's less about celebration or remembrance but more about providing an outlet from yeah. the rules of society and specifically venetian carnivale i believe happens just before lent 
Um, I think it's like the it's either just before or just after Lent. I I don't remember. Is it remember. one of the ones um, that coincides with Mardi Gras and Shrove Tuesday? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a no, bunch yes, of those basically on it's, that particular Tuesday. It is Mardi Gras. It's like the Venetian version of Mardi Gras. Um, and. And like, so it's this sort of like last gasp of celebration before you go into this period of like good. solemnity. Before you go be good, right. We're going to party and then we're going to be yeah. good. <laughs> and, and, and obviously, we, we, I think we've talked, touched on it briefly, but a lot of this is about reflecting the natural rhythms of a calendar and mm-hmm. reflecting seasons. So we're about to go mm-hmm. into the long dark, let's celebrate. Or we are coming out of the long dark, let's celebrate that. Or, you know, all of the trees have got fruit on them let's have a harvest festival mm, you know it's about sort right. of a way of marking time with the things that happen in the natural world and that must make me wonder a little bit whether you know i'm sitting here doing the shed a tear for our poor australian hand gesture which all of our darling listeners of course can tell through the radio um we're so good at doing but radio it's kind of a consequence of this um geosynchronization where everybody's on the internet mm. that australia doesn't get to define its own rhythms in quite no. the same way uh, no, we have no, because we are because you're just absolutely inundated in other people's culture, and yeah, I mean we 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 have Halloween on the most superficial level. Like mm. there is absolutely no cultural basis for it. Ten years ago, it barely existed, and now it's just a way to sell a lot of chocolate. But that's it, and yeah. maybe have a costume party. But I will insist that we talk about one of the most fun aspects of festivals, which is the unbearable aesthetic. <laughs> Yes. So (laughs) this is relevant, obviously, to the fact that obviously we're discussing fictional temples based around holidays, which is possible because there is such a huge aesthetic associated with them, Mm -hmm. Christmas especially, and what we've talked about here. And yes, I have a theory here that the reason there are so many stories and TV episodes and movies built around festivals is that it is the equivalent of writing a fusion fanfic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Someone has Mm -hmm. done half the world building for you. Because Interesting. You, know, you know exactly what the rituals are, the beats are, what's the expected ways in which you can behave. And uh-huh. the way this is manifested the most strongly is in Christmas romance movies. Ah, we were promised a Freya corner. Please, Freya. <gasps> okay. So I have only just been introduced to this in the last few years. The overabundance of Hallmark Channel, Lifestyle Channel. Is that what it's called? The Lifestyle Channel? Yeah, um, something and like that. Now, Netflix... Uh, production of Christmas movies, the, the fact that literally hundreds of these are made every year just to be shown that one year and then never looked at again. Yeah. I, 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 I cannot even, it, it just boggles the mind. What but is I it watched for? Few, uh, mostly watched, co-watched with somebody else while we have drinks mm. and we wish to make fun of whatever it is that is happening because they are so centered in a very, very specific aesthetic and also a specific moral aesthetic. Mm. Because some of them will mention God. Mm. Mostly they won't. But at the same time, they are drenched in this American Christianity ideal of heteronormativity, mostly. Mm. Mm -hmm. Blood family, Mm. mostly. And the values and the, I guess, upholding this idea of the purity of a small town and the purity of returning to your roots. And it's all about this big, this woman who was in the big city and she works really hard, but she's lost track of what's really important. And so she goes back to a small town and there will be, you know, you can play any drinking game you want, but there may be a small plot moppet who, you know, 
makes her think about being a mother and there may be Christmas sweaters and decorating a tree or mm-hmm. tobogganing or like there's just there's a list of tropes that you can pick from. Half the world and building it's... has been done and she will end up falling in love and discovering that what's really important is not her career or being on her own, but having someone to be with at Christmas. Right. And it's also like overwhelmingly middle class, overwhelmingly white. Yes. And just like, like his, as you said, like just this painfully like cliche washed out version of American uh, Christmas. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what's, that's. The sort of Hallmark stuff, mostly. Yeah. The Netflix Christmas movies are doing a whole other thing oh to do with magical <laughs> geopolitics, which I am very into. Okay. 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 So have you Tell seen, us more. Have you seen A Night Before Christmas or any of the Princess Switch movies nope. or Christmas Prince movies? Okay. No. This is like the Netflix oh Christmas God. cinematic universe. Oh God. Okay. <gasps> Starring many versions of Vanessa Hudgens. So, for my money, probably the most entertaining one of all is the original Princess Switch, which is a very classic Ruritanian story about a New York, I think, possibly Chicago, baker who goes to this tiny fake European country to enter a baking contest. Baking contests are, like, very important in Christmas movies. And discovers that she is the exact doppelganger of a duchess who has been brought there to marry the prince. Okay. And of course, okay. they discover that they are identical. They swap places for a while in order to explore the other one's life. And obviously, they fall in love with the person that the other person was meant to fall in love with. <sighs> there has now been a sequel called The Princess Switch 2, which brings in a third doppelganger, which I am very excited <laughs> about. Haven't watched it yet. And then there is another Christmas prince thing about like a journalist who goes to a country and falls in love with the prince. Again, lots of princes, because this is the equivalent of all the dukes in regencies. This is just, there is a small cluster of made-up European countries, and all of them have young, single, hot princes available for Americans to date. Uh, (laughs) Is this transmigration? Within them. And then there is another movie called The Prince for Christmas or something like that. But anyway, he... No, no, hang on. The Night Before Christmas or something about a knight who time travels. With a K. Night with a K, right? Night with a K about a knight who time travels into the modern day and meets another version of Vanessa Hudgens, who we're not sure if if she exists in the same universe, but the theory is she does. This is a lot. It's a lot. This is a lot to deal with. I will link, or get the scribes to link, to a wonderful thread on Twitter uh, by romance author and romance scholar Jodie McAllister, where she poses a theory that this is all going to lead up to a European war between the human royals and the fae. So I just maintain that there's probably an orphan black AU that went horribly wrong. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much in that in that vein. Yeah. That's but, wonderful. But as I mentioned with the, the Doctor Who thing, the whole point of Christmas holiday romances and rom-coms in books, like Christmas romance books, especially novellas, are very, very common and very popular, is that it is about family. Like, it's about this idea that you have to have somebody to bring home for Christmas or bring home for Thanksgiving or, you know, bring to a wedding that you are expected to be paired off in a family setting. And that can lead you to fake dating or, you know, having somebody that you then bring into your family circle or to rescue you from your horrible family circle. Mm, That's a a mood. As, like, a lifelong queer, this is one of the reasons that, like, I love the Christmas aesthetic, but, like, doing the Christmas in the approved Christmasing fashion is not a thing I'm a fan of. 
Um, mm-hmm. But we should talk about the best Christmas movie of all time. The best movie of all time. The best Christmas movie of all time. The best it's Christmas movie. No okay, yes. Jupiter Ascending. It, you're right. I did misspeak. I assume we're talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas. Indeed. <laughs> in How which, could we talk about anything in else? In which a very earnest skeleton attempts to be Father Christmas. And commits some serious cultural appropriation. And a lot of crime. <laughs> and a lot of crime. <laughs> Uh, it's got everything. It really does. <laughs> uh, small children, plot moppets. Uh, yeah. Uh, some murder. Oh, some <laughs> attempted murder. Anyway. Yeah. Um, good kidnapping. Good songs. Uh, good, mm-hmm. very good songs. Yeah. Very, very good songs. Yeah. Yes. But again, this is about the aesthetic, right? So this is a Christmas movie with an yes. undeniably Halloween aesthetic. You look at any single still from that movie, even the ones where the skeleton is wearing a Santa hat and a terrible beard. And it's clearly yeah. a Halloween movie. Yeah. Right. And it's it's like, okay, so if by some chance you haven't seen Nightmare Before Christmas, there is uh, Jack the Skeleton King who lives in Halloween Town and he discovers Christmas Town and he's like, this is great. I love this aesthetic. Let's have a break from all this Halloween stuff. And he basically like takes Christmas and pastes it <laughs> on top of the Halloween stuff without really considering like the original context or like what it was doing or why things were done that way and and so it's this really fascinating like blend of of aesthetics and also like i think a very appropriate movie for children to start talking to them about cultural appropriation mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> did you have any more to say about that or can i ask you a very quick troll question okay continue all right just a yes or no question is v for vendetta a festival movie I've never watched it, so I can't answer. You've mm. never seen V for Vendetta. Yeah. Really interesting. Ooh, that's a good one. I think... Because it takes place on November the 5th. It's very much about the 5th of November. Like, very... Yeah. Yeah, I'd say yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Great. Thank you. <laughs> you <laughs> should I, watch it. I agree with great. that formulation. Die Hard is a Christmas I... movie. V yeah, for Vendetta I... is a festival movie. Wonderful. I love Bonfire Night, though. Right? Like, I miss mm-hmm. Bonfire Night because it's just a festival about being in autumn. It's the festival that has the BBC sending out announcements about how to examine your bonfire piles for hedgehogs mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because they had far too many traumatized children who had accidentally <laughs> caused harm to animals, yep. which we want to not do. Um, yeah. But for you, Macy, that is almost, uh, it's, not, it's not a religious festival, but that is the secular interpretation of Bonfire Night. Whereas V for Vendetta is taking is saying actually Bonfire Night is about blowing up your government when you don't when your government has gone evil and yes. oppressive. Oh, indeed! Yes. Remember, we remember love the fifth of November, exactly. gunpowder, treason, and plot. So it's saying uh. that is the meaning of the season. <laughs> it doesn't really have anything to do with chasing out hedgehogs. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So we are running out of time, dear listeners. Just as we are, in fact, running out of the year twenty twenty. Thank goodness. Thank I fuck. know that. Thank fuck we're running out of the year 2020. I am seriously looking forward to the new year. Um, if you are interested in more about world building for festivals, uh, my previous, uh, my former other podcast, World Building for Masochists. Cheating on us. I former came back to you. It's my fine. former other podcast. polyamory. <laughs> Uh, they did a, a episode about festivals and uh, they had a whole hour to talk in depth about it. You should go listen to that. Uh, happy holidays, dear listeners. Happy New Year. I hope that 2021 is better for all of us. So mote it be. So mote it be. <laughs> and a happy new year. <laughs> and a happy new year. 
Hello everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. For the next episode, two weeks hence on January 13th, we're digging into the idea of reputation. Not the Taylor Swift album. Well, maybe a little bit the Taylor Swift album. Anyway, we're going to be talking about celebrities in fiction, so if you've got any friends or parasocial relationships who might be interested in that, maybe give them a heads up. One of our tentpoles will be a romance novel that I've already shouted about on the podcast, and which I highly recommend if you enjoy salty fandom feelings. That's Spoiler Alert by Olivia Dade. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? As ever, you can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us further, you can also find our Patreon at patreon.com serpentcast. Or please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes so we can continue to reach new listeners. And by the way, happy holidays, everyone. <laughs>